Chapter Ten of In Search of the Unknown by Robert W. Chambers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter Ten. I lunched at my lodgings on the Quai Malthus, and I had but little appetite, having fed upon such an unexpected variety of emotions during the morning. Now, although I was already heels over head in love, I do not believe that loss of appetite was the result of that alone. I was slowly beginning to realize what my recent attitude might cost me, not only in an utter collapse of my scientific career and the consequent material ruin which was likely to follow, but in the loss of all my friends at home. The Zoological Society of Bronx Park and the Smithsonian Institution of Washington had sent me as their trusted delegate, leaving it entirely to me to choose the subject on which I was to speak before the International Congress. What, then, would be their attitude when they learned that I had chosen to uphold the dangerous theory of the existence of the ox? Would they repudiate me and send another delegate to replace me? Would they merely wash their hands of me and let me go to my own destruction? I will know soon enough, thought I, for this morning's proceedings will have been cabled to New York ere now, and read at the breakfast tables of every old moss-grown naturalist in America before I see the Countess Dalzette this evening. And I drew from my pocket the roll of paper which she had given me, and lighting a cigar, lay back in my chair to read it. The manuscript had been beautifully typewritten, and I had no trouble in following her brief, clear account of the circumstances under which the notorious Uckskin had been obtained. As for the story itself, it was somewhat fishy, but I manfully swallowed my growing nervousness, and comforted myself with the belief of Darwin in the existence of the ox, and the subsequent testimony of Wallace, who simply stated what he had seen through his telescope, and then left it to others to identify the enormous birds he described as he had observed them, stalking about on the snowy peaks of the Tasmanian Alps. My own knowledge of the ox was confined to a single circumstance. When, in 1897, I had gone to Tasmania with Professor Farrago to make a report on the availability of the so-called Tasmanian devil as a substitute for the mongoose in the West Indies. I, of course, heard a great deal of talk among the natives concerning the birds which they affirmed haunted the summits of the mountains. Our time in Tasmania was too limited to admit of an exploration then. But although we were perfectly aware that the summits of the Tasmanian Alps were inaccessible, we certainly should have attempted to gain them, had not the time set for our departure arrived before we had completed the investigation for which we were sent. One relic, however, I carried away with me. It was a single greenish-bronzed feather, found high up in the mountains by a native, and sold to me for a somewhat large sum of money. Darwin believed the ox to be covered with greenish plumage. Wallace was too far away to observe the color of the great birds, but all the natives of Tasmania unite in affirming 
that the plumage of the ox is green. It was not only the color of this feather that made me an eager purchaser, it was the extraordinary length and size. I knew of no living bird large enough to wear such a feather. As for the color, that might have been tampered with before I bought it, and indeed testing it later I found on the fronds traces of sulphate of copper. But the same thing has been found in the feathers of certain birds whose color is metallic green, and it has been proven that such birds pick up and swallow shining bits of copper pyrites. Why should not the ox do the same thing? Still, my only reason for believing in the existence of the bird was this single feather. I had easily proved that it belonged to no known species of bird. I also proved it to be similar to the tail feathers of the uckskin in Antwerp. But the feathers on the Antwerp specimen were grey, and the longest of them was but three feet in length, while my huge bronze green feather measured eleven feet from tip to tip. One might account for it supposing the Antwerp skin to be that of a young bird, or of a molting bird, or perhaps of a different sex from the bird whose feather I had secured. Still, these ideas were not proven. Nothing concerning the birds had been proven. I had but a single fact to lean on, and that was that the feather I possessed could not have belonged to any known species of bird. Nobody but myself knew of the existence of this feather. And now I meant to cable to Bronx Park for it, and to place this evidence at the disposal of the beautiful Countess d'Alzette. My cigar had gone out as I sat musing, and I relighted it and resumed my reading of the typewritten notes, lazily, even a trifle skeptically, for all the evidence that she had been able to collect to substantiate her theory of the existence of the ox was not half as important as the evidence I was to produce in the shape of that enormous green feather. I came to the last paragraph, smoking serenely, and leaning back comfortably, one leg crossed over the other. Then, suddenly, my attention became riveted on the words under my eyes. Could I have read them aright? Could I believe what I read in ever-growing astonishment, which culminated in an excitement that stirred the very hair on my head? The ox exists. There is no longer room for doubt. Ocular proof I can now offer, in the shape of five living eggs of this gigantic bird. All measures have been taken to hatch these eggs. They are now in the vast incubator. It is my plan to have them hatch one by one under the very eyes of the International Congress. It will be the greatest triumph that science has witnessed since the discovery of the New World. Signed, Suzanne de Alzette. Either, I cried out in uncontrollable excitement, either that girl is mad or she is the cleverest woman on earth. After a moment, I added, In either event, I am going to marry her. End of chapter 10